Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 35, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by James Kingsland, the author of this month's book, Am I Dreaming? The Science of Altered States from Psychedelics to Virtual Reality and Beyond. James is a science and medical journalist with 25 years of experience working for publications such as The New Scientist, Nature, and The Guardian. He's also the author of Siddhartha's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment, which also excited and curious to read at some point, as well as having his own blog, The Plastic Brain, where he writes about neuroscience and Buddhist psychology. So thank you so much, James, for being here today. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, for the invitation. Totally. So originally we were going to talk about Siddhartha's Brain, but then you let me know about this newer book that came out. Um, how long has Am I Dreaming been out? Um, well, it came out the year before the pandemic really kicked off. So that's um, 2019, isn't it? Yeah, I see that here in the copyright. Yeah, so it's been it's been a few years, but it's like we've been in uh, suspended animation uh, since then. So uh, yeah, perhaps not so long after all. Right, nothing's really happened in the last two years. No, no, we've been on hold. Right. So this book was wonderful, uh, wonderful to read. And I would say extremely interesting um like interesting level approaching a 10 um which isn't always the case with the books that we have on the podcast a lot of them are very useful because we have like a lot of self-help mental health books um and this one is also useful but it's also extraordinarily interesting because it's about you know it's about our brains not just our minds um so thanks for doing all the hard work um i guess i mean you've been a science writer a long time so you're You've, you're constantly digging into the nitty-gritty of things, into all the jargon and, and all the vocabularies. Well, that's right. I started out as a uh, sub-editor, um, winding up at New Scientist. And, um, and yeah, it was all about um, getting down to the nitty-gritty gritty of language and trying to explain complex subjects in a way that uh, a generalist reader can understand. And then I started to get into the, uh, into the writing. and um, so I've written uh, features and news articles. Most recently, I've been writing medical news for uh, Medical News Today, which is part of Healthline. And uh, so, uh, so yes, I've been in it in it for a long time, one way or another. Right. Um, so, I mean, Siddhartha's Brain, which you know I haven't read yet, but I can imagine what it's about. And and am I dreaming? These are a lot about the mind. But since you've been a science writer for a long time, were there other big themes uh, that you were focused on before you started getting into all this heady stuff? Um, well, um, I wrote a lot of uh, features for New Scientist about um, neuroscience of mental illness and uh, and a bit about genetics too. But I was, I've, I've been, really since the start of my career, I've been very interested in how... Um, how well antidepressants, namely SSRIs, work for for depression, and um, you know that's such a long a long running debate. So it's been kind of at the back of my mind for a long time. And all the alternatives to drugs, such as um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and mindfulness, and most recently um, psychedelics have come to the fore. So it's something that's been been sort of. Uh, cooking for a long time as it were you know since the start of my my career when people were questioning whether ssris were as fantastic fantastic as they were initially cracked up to be um you know it turns out they have multiple side effects and uh they don't work for, for everybody it takes them a while to kick in and also the contention is that they they tend to numb the symptoms rather than treating the underlying causes so obviously, um, all this is still still quite contentious, and they do work extremely well for some people, but they don't work for everybody. So these extra extra interventions like uh, mindfulness and psychedelics and so on uh, are really interesting, uh, promising alternatives. Right. Yeah. Um, I think the episode that's going to come out next month, the author is a neuroscientist, and he He's also a mindfulness uh, researcher, and I think in his book he talks about how if people come into the office for an anxiety problem, um, he has like a one in five shot of getting a, an SSRI or some other 
med- medication to work. Whereas with mindfulness or very like targeted pres- prescriptive mindfulness, it's like one and two. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So um, is your interest in like the efficacy of SSRIs? Is that a purely a professional interest or is a human with a brain? Is, is it close to your heart or mind at all? Well, it's close to my heart and mind because I have uh, friends and relatives who have taken them or are, or are taking them, and um, so uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's close close to my heart. I've been fortunate; um, I haven't had to take them myself, though. On on a few occasions, I've taken anti-anxiety drugs, you know, just as a one-off. Um, my um, I, I do have bipolar disorder in my family. And so um, uh, that's been generally treated with uh, with lithium. So rather than major uh, depressive disorder, it's it's been bipolar disorder. And uh, touch wood, I seem to have dodged that bullet myself. Um, but so you know, it's always been fascinating and uh, awe-inspiring and slightly scary. So you know, I'm always interested t- uh, to look into new possibilities for treating these things, whether it's whether it's mindfulness or, or psychedelics. Totally. Yeah. And you write about um, your family history with bipolar disorder in the book um, and some of your like early queasiness around some of the ayahuasca ceremonies or the, or the one that you attended. Um, so, okay. So let's get down to the book. So the book is all about um, it's, it's, I mean, obviously you wrote it, so you know better than I, but from reading it, there's there's so many similarities but also important differences between our sort of waking lives our waking minds and everything else which includes like trance hypnotism uh virtual reality psychedelics mindfulness um even uh playing video games uh so i guess the book tries to tease apart the kind of difference the differences there and how um how the brain actually works to mediate those differences to modulate them um so what what are those states, the non-sober, non-ruminating, non-traditional like, uh, mental state um, of, of just a, a, an, awake, an awake brain on a, on a day? What's the difference between that and all those other things I enumerated? Yeah, well, um, as you say, it's been fascinating to discover all, all the things that they have in, in common. Um, I was concerned when I started writing the book that I, that I wouldn't find a common thread, um, uh, but, I, but I did uh, in, in so many ways. And uh, what these altered states reveal is, is how the brain works in, uh, in normal consciousness and um, what is so, so incredibly uh, counterintuitive and fascinating is that um, even in ordinary consciousness, uh, the brain is effectively um, uh, creating our our perception, our thoughts and emotions, rather than uh, as you might intuitively think. Uh, it's not that we're taking in sensory experiences, sensory data, and building the world in, inside our head as as a kind of internal theatre. Um, it's rather more as though the uh, the brain imposes its cognitive models on the world. It it uh, creates so much of what we believe to be perception from the outside in. A lot of it is from the inside out, and uh, from the moment of birth, where um, our brains are building this kind of model of the external world. And the better it gets at it, the less it it relies on on pure. Uh, raw sensory data so and this only becomes apparent for example in optical illusions when all sorts of uh, weird things jump off the page at you and you think wow how can that be possible and uh, uh, the strongest explanation for what's happening is it's it's your brain that's that's um, uh, imposing its models on reality as it were it's it's a top-down process and uh, when you uh, mess with the brain a little, a little more, when you're dreaming, or when you're on psychedelics, or if you're having an out-of-body experience, it becomes even more apparent that it's the brain that's in the driving seat. It's the brain that's really uh, governing what you hear, see, smell, and taste. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so maybe we can dig into that a little bit. So when you are looking at an optical illusion, like the that sort of famous one of a vase, um, which if you blink is also like two people, two people's side profiles looking at each other. Um, it's, it's definitely an interesting experience to toggle between the two or maybe to see one and then have a friend point out the possibility of the other and then auto, you know, sort of instantaneously that other image becomes available to you. What, yeah, how, how to understand that in terms of um, our brain's virtual reality machine, um, the toggling between the two apparent um, images. Yeah. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? It seems that the brain has two alternative models and it will only use one at a time. So you either see the vase or you see the two faces. You can't see a, a blurring of the two at the same time. It's one or the other. And that really demonstrates uh, you know, that, that it, the, the brain is almost like selecting from, uh, from a, uh, you know, a, a deck, like a deck of cards, the alternative... Um, alternative models or alternative uh, um, uh, preconceptions of how the world is meant to look and so it chooses one and it goes with that and then uh, you know unless somebody prompts you to see it the other way it will stick with that um, and uh, it's true in in uh, in so much of our, our experience right right yeah that's really interesting yeah like you you make make it clear in at least one chapter on trance where like suggestibility you know from some kind of um, religious or cultural ritual or even just some magnetic individual or leader um, can really change the way that we uh, act and behave yes the context is is so important as you say um, for example, uh, if you're being hypnotized or if you're sitting in a congregation, it makes so much difference whether uh, the person doing the hypnotizing or doing the preaching has a uh, you know a big reputation, whether you respect them and honor them. Um, that makes you so much more suggestible. You're more likely to believe what they say and, and uh, more remarkably, you're more likely to, to fall under their spell, as it were. If uh, if the, the hypnotist uh, tells you that you can no longer lift your arm or or that uh, you can no longer see in color, if 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 they're a persuasive, charismatic, uh, reputable person, that's more likely to work um, because uh, effectively they've taken over the executive control of your brain. They're those top-down models, you know, it's uh, you've uh, surrendered control to them, and it's them who who is uh, deciding which model you use. Mm-hmm. Right. They're like very quickly uploading a new model for your brain to choose from. And mm. then and then either they or your brain or, uh, I don't know, the homunculus, someone's choosing that one to go with, I guess. <laughs> yes, we have to... Um... We have to try and get away from the homunculus because, uh, yeah, of course, the trouble with that is, you know, who is who is running the homunculus? You know, is the homunculus conscious, and and how does his his or her perception work? So um, that's one of the problems with the old-fashioned um, bottom-up idea of perception um, that uh, you have information flowing into your mind from the outside. You know, you've got to you wonder where. Where in the brain is that actually being perceived? You can you can think about how that information is processed, but the end, in the end, it has to be perceived somewhere. So that's where it, the homunculus idea comes unstuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a big can of worms, but I think this book goes a long way to um, unpacking a lot of that. Um, so the the learning that occurs in the brain that allows us to construct these models and use them. I guess, in a sort of more efficient way, kind of heuristically, um, to view the world and understand it instead of having to constantly, like, download all the sensory information, you know, coming in from our senses. Um, I, I mean, you write that, that a lot of that stuff starts in the womb, um, including this, the, the grand perception, at least one talked about a lot in Buddhist circles of, like, having a, a self. Um, so, I mean, is it fair to say that, like, Er, yeah so early on in the womb like for babies and also during psychedelic experiences we can detect that kind of edge 
which is sort of where um, that top-down prediction uh, sort of sort of stops, and the incoming sense data is a, is a little more pure. Or, or am I being too metaphor metaphorical? No, I, I see what you mean. I mean, I think um, uh, probably uh, children and infant, infants and fetuses in the womb they are probably much more dominated by the sensory data and um what happens from the from the womb onwards is is that uh, the sensory data is is training those models is building those models from the bottom up so uh, the baby could could grasp something or or shake something and hear hear the noise that it makes uh, uh make eye contact with its mother and it's it's learning the associations between different streams of sensory data um so example you know if it shakes the rattle it makes a noise and it, it's learned something from that and it's started to build up a model of of how the world works and so um really childhood is really a continual progression of this this uh um building of uh cognitive models uh so that the uh, incoming sensory data is less and less important and the expectation and prediction become more and more prominent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess what we're talking about is like a pretty um, uh, pretty big theory in the way that our brains process. And I think, it, is this the same as the um, prediction prediction theory of the brain is that the name of of what we're talking about absolutely yes yes it's it's usually called uh, predictive coding and the idea is that the brain works as a kind of um information processing hierarchy with um predictions flowing down the hierarchy um in one direction and prediction errors coming back in the other direction the prediction errors are are the difference between what the brain has predicted and what the sense data is is saying. So, so if there's a discrepancy, that gets passed upwards to update the brain's cognitive models. But if there's a, a good match, then you know there's no need for that to happen. And um, and so the uh, the predictions uh, win out. Mm -hmm. And I so yeah. So I was standing in the grocery store yesterday and i was waiting to check out and i glanced over at a box of pancake mix and it said it said what i thought was the word use pancake mix like use it like you know you know use this pancake mix to make pancakes and i thought well that's strange why would it say use pancake mix it's like not really like this a standard way to string a sentence together and i i think that in that moment there was a discrepancy between uh, my brain's model, which was predicting the word use, you know, from a distance. And this, this, um, I don't know, there was some kind of, I guess, inner conflict between the models of how the world should work. Like one, use is a very common word. So it seems reasonable that you would see that out in the world. But at the same time, in the context of like a, uh, you know, a, a name for a, pack, a pancake product, it's, it's strange. And so I stared at it a little bit longer and then the the S sort of fell away and I reread it as ube, which I think is some kind of Japanese um, oh. flour. So they were these Japanese pancakes and then it made sense. But in that moment, um, it felt kind of strange. And I was thinking a lot about the book and this theory of, of predictive coding. So is that kind of an example? That's a really good example. Yeah, because um, in particular with language, uh, not just when you're when you're reading, but when you're listening to speech, for example, um, we think it's quite quite clear, uh, for example, where one word finishes and another word starts. But if you look at the sort of pure sound data, if you if you plotted it on a graph, it would be impossible to differentiate one word from the next. And yet the brain somehow does it. And uh, the idea is that it's. Um, um, our experience of learning a language has, has allowed us to to um, overlay uh, meaning uh, predictions on on what would otherwise be a sort of meaningless uh, uh, mass of um, acoustic data. And so, you know, in order to to speak and to understand language and to read, you you're you're using your 
your preconceptions, your predictions and expectations to an enormous extent that you don't realize until as you experience there's some sort of ambiguity and uh, your your confusion will have uh, uh, triggered your brain into searching for alternative explanations. And of course, in the end, you know, you came up with the right explanation and uh, your your perception uh, resolved and corrected itself. Yeah, thankfully, you know, that would have been a <laughs> difficult trip to the grocery store. It can be quite quite amusing. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes I'm in the supermarket or one time I was in the supermarket and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a, a package that said assholes. And I thought, oh, my God, what, <laughs> what, what the hell is that? And I looked more closely and it was casseroles. <laughs> casserole. I don't know whether Americans call casserole. You probably call it something else. But uh, So, yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think the surprising part about it and what the theory is suggesting that makes things seem kind of spooky is it doesn't feel like models are being overlaid on our uh, sensory perception. It feels like we're seeing the actual thing. So to for me to, to stare at that word that I thought was U-S-E and then like in a moment it's changed to a B, I guess that's the real kind of like strange or spooky part right that makes the it's remarkable yeah. yeah and it all happens unconsciously and you know in uh, less than a blink of an eye you know much faster than a blink of an eye so that, so that you don't notice that it's happening and um I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto this later but uh on uh on psychedelics in, in particular lsd um the hallucinations are really quite incredible and until it's happened to you you don't realize how how plastic our perception is, how how malleable it is, until you've had a you know a trip of some sort, and you know anything can happen basically, entirely according to your what you expect to happen and you know what your uh, what your preconceptions are. Yeah, let's talk about that now because that obviously dominates a big section of the book and is probably one of the reasons why someone would pick up the book because psychedelics are so interesting. So. Um, yeah, as you said, like the experience of being on a psychedelics really sort of bears out this hypothesis, which seems very a very good explanation for why things look so strange when you're tripping. Um, because I think, as you say, the the data that comes into our senses is very noisy, um, and so if it, if it weren't for this sort of discerning mind that filters out, as you call it, which I guess is a little controversial but probably useful, fake news. Um, from from a more trustworthy source, you know, our sober realities are much less interesting because it seems like the ground is not moving. But then, you know, you maybe you ingest some mushrooms or ayahuasca or something, and then there's movement in the floor. Um, so this this theory goes a long way in, uh, in 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 making that like not just an interesting or weird thing that happens, but laying bare just how noisy the incoming sense data is. That's right. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it it does um, what you see or experience while on psychedelics um, does depend enormously on how on how uh, noisy and sparse that data is. For example, if you've got your blindfold on, you'll 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 probably see um, visual hallucinations. But if you're out in the open air, you know, looking at uh, uh, flowers and trees and grass um, it'll be a completely different experience you won't hallucinate but you'll you'll see everything more more vividly and one of my experiences was was to see um, a garden as if it was in 3d for the first time you know it uh, supernaturally three-dimensional in a kind of uh, in, a, in a way that I'd, I'd never I'd never seen before and uh, it was almost like going back to the uh, Garden of Eden. I think that was the metaphor I used in the book. It was like a completely new, new creation, and uh, you know, lots of people say this. But as, as you say, if if uh, if the sensory data is absent, then your your mind will create your experience in its entirety, and and you know, you will you will see visions and things will happen. Or if you're indoors, perhaps in a dimly lit room. You know, all sorts of uh, crazy stuff is going is going to happen. You know, the walls will start wobbling and so on, and the floor will start bobbing up and down, and uh, colors will change, and 
you know, all kinds of crazy stuff is going to happen if, if the sensory data is sparse or ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we should get to the usefulness of beyond just being interesting, what the usefulness of these trips are. But I've sort of had a, a personal theory that the reason why things might seem to move a little bit when you're under the influence of psychedelics is because, you know, you're breathing, right? So our bodies are constantly moving. So it kind of makes sense that the sensory input exactly, would seem yeah, to be... Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably there there is some, you know, some uh, smidgen of ambiguous sensory data that, that is is uh, telling you that's what happened. For example, when uh, I went on my uh, very brief ayahuasca retreat and during a ceremony um, up at, at the front of the, uh, of the temple, the Maloka, there was a shaman uh, uh, shaking a an instrument, a rattle, and um, uh, under the influence of ayahuasca, I became convinced that the sound of the shaking, the rattling noise, was coming directly from directly behind me. And when I looked around, there was nothing there. But uh, later on, rationalizing it, I thought, uh, well, it's possible... Uh, these malokas, they're, they're, they're built of uh, wooden pillars with a, with a thatched roof on top. And I was sitting uh, right in front of a, uh, a pillar. In fact, I was leaning back on the pillar, I think. So it's just possible that, you know, the sound of the shaking coming from in front of me was bouncing off the pillar and uh, into my ears. And it, it was that uh, reflected sound that was uh, tricking my brain into thinking the, the source was behind me and not in front of me. So it's it's the kind of thing that could happen, you know. Some very uh, uh, sparse, ambiguous data could could completely uh, mislead you. And under psychedelics, you know, things get get ramped up to a whole whole new extent that you don't have in ordinary consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the therapeutic benefits because, you know, if psychedelics are truly going to make it into um, you know, the mainstream and be acceptable beyond just something that people use to um, kind of like bliss out and have uh, an interesting afternoon. Um, what what are some of the benefits that, that are written about in the book for various maladies, including like depression, anxiety? I know OCD is also mentioned. <clears throat> um, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's right. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable uh, range of possible applications the one that's, uh, or the two actually that have had the most clinical research to date are um, anxiety, namely uh, end-of-life anxiety, people with terminal illnesses. And um, the other one that's had a lot of, uh, well, quite a bit of research so far is uh, major depression. So the clinical trials are starting to show some really, really positive, interesting results. Uh, For example, uh, one of the most recent ones from um, Imperial College in London showed that um, psilocybin was just as, as effective as a SSRI at um, treating treating depression. On one, one measure of uh, depression, it was just as good as the drug, and on the other, it was it was quite a bit better. So, um, and the other advantage, of course, with uh, psilocybin is you, you just have to take it once maybe twice and it, you know, the effects can last up to six months whereas with a conventional antidepressant you need to carry on taking it every day uh, so there's some really interesting results starting to come out and as you, you probably know the um, FDA has granted uh, breakthrough status to uh, psilocybin as a treatment for uh, major depression that doesn't respond to conventional drugs. And so hopefully that will fast track the um, phase three clinical trials so that uh, it will become uh, available as a, a therapy that much more quickly, um, hopefully, if, if it all goes to plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and um, I think you write in the book that, um, you know, the burden of proof for these drugs to be effective doesn't necessarily need to be higher than like their analogs like SSRIs, which I think for a long time and maybe still today, scientists aren't exactly sure the mechanism by which um, they sort of alleviate these symptoms. But what what is the story at the very least um, around why something like a psychedelic could alleviate symptoms of depression? 
yes, well, um, the uh, the leading the leading theory at the moment um, coming out of um, Imperial Imperial College. There's uh, there are uh, two guys there. One one who's actually left and is working at an American uh, psychedelic research center now. Robin Carhart Harris, and the other one is David Nutt, who's still at Imperial. And their theory is that um, uh, what psychedelics do is to to nudge the brain towards a more chaotic or entropic state, and um, in this more more fluid, uh, chaotic state, um, uh, the, the brain is able to to reconfigure to. Uh, to reshuffle its its uh, cognitive models, um, because the problem with with many mental illnesses is that um, the uh, the brain's models become highly rigid. It's very difficult to change them. Over time, they become more and more hardwired into the brain. And uh, the other example I forgot to mention was addiction. Uh, some very uh, promising signs that psychedelics help in addiction, and um, what seems to happen when people get hooked on, on drugs, for example, uh, uh, or on on uh, smoking or alcohol, what have you, or gambling, um, their um, uh, their minds, their 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 uh, uh, pre-configured models, they become extremely rigid. And what psychedelics appear to do is to shake things up. So that uh, you you find a certain amount of uh, openness, you re- rediscover an openness that allows you to relearn those models, to uh, to go beyond them, and uh, uh, to overcome some of these problems like uh, depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, even PTSD, uh, post traumatic stress disorder. It's a kind of unlearning process that's only possible by by tipping the brain into an almost psychotic state there are many parallels between psychosis and um, altered states of consciousness such as the uh, psychedelic state and and dreaming for example Um, so uh, in a funny sort of way you have to go a bit crazy in in order to regain your sanity Mm -hmm. Uh, so that appears to be at least that's their theory of how it's working yeah yeah that's interesting there's a you have a great sentence in the book uh, where you say that psychedelics maybe flatten the mindscape of desire and there's this there's a visual that you create of a sort of plane with um, various different i guess mathematicians would call it like minima like local minima like little divots um, in the plane where maybe to be metaphorical as a thinker of thoughts uh, a lot of your time maybe winds up in these these uh these these uh, lower spots in the plane where like if you were rolling a ball across it, you know, they would, they would live a lot. And, and I know in, in mindfulness circles, they talk a lot about, you know, these conditioned patterns we have, these places we spend a lot of our time. So perhaps, and again, obviously we're being metaphorical, but um, psychedelics uh, jumbling or shuffling things allows, um, you know, the person to maybe spend a little bit less time in some of those really well-grooved paths or maybe just have the option of, you know, not not taking the path of least resistance. Things are like a little more even and, and less um, sort of high peaks and low troughs. Um, am, I, am I making any sense? In no, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good metaphor that gets, gets used quite a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, they talk, as you say, they talk of... Uh, imagining a, a rubber sheet with troughs in and and the deeper the troughs are the more likely uh the ball bearing which you could you could imagine as the mind the more likely that is to get stuck in one of those troughs which is what happens in in addiction or, or depression or or ocd and uh, you know it can't get out so if you could find a way to to even out the mindscape of, of, of making the uh troughs a little less deep then uh you, know, you can keep the ball, the uh, ball bearing moving around, which which is a, a healthy state to be in, to be able to to explore, you know, different uh, different possibilities, to learn new things, and uh, you know, to be happier and uh, healthier altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a really compelling image, um, one that definitely resonates with me. Um, 
I think the one one thing that's pretty interesting about the psychedelic experience is it seems to reorder like priorities. Um, I, I mean, like I remember on one, I I've done mushrooms a few times and I remember on one such event, it seemed like the, my normal waking thoughts, which are mostly about like finding safety and reproducing were kind of replaced by like how interesting the floor was or grass. So <sighs> It's it's kind of like I don't know for me it felt like there was this evolutionary story which is like you know eat things find things you know that sort of um, frantic gathering of of possessions and uh, relationships was replaced by more like curiosity um, yeah. I don't know if that maps on uh, very much so yes and um, um, you know in a funny sort of way the the world becomes so much more. Uh, fascinating and interesting and uh, fulfilling, you know, when you're not constantly, um, uh, you know, chasing chasing food and money and and uh, new mates, um, and uh, uh, yes, because uh, it's it's an ev- evolutionary problem. You know, it's 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 perfectly natural that we have these these drives, and that as time goes by, we we become more entrenched in the way that we we pursue those drives and and uh you know there comes a time when we can't say we can't say no to them anymore you know we'd hardly know that we have a choice anymore and so the wonderful thing about altered states and in particular psychedelics is that they can uh, at least for a short while they can break us out of that sort of prison that evolutionary prison that um has been imposed on us, you know, during our own lifetime, and of course, during during millions of years of uh, evolution. You know, the the compulsion to uh, to eat and reproduce and uh, survive. It's mm. uh, it's th- those are very very strong things, but they're not necessarily what makes us uh, happy, of course. And uh, you know, as Buddhists would have it, uh, it's our um, our urges, our desires that. Uh, that make us so unhappy, that make us suffer. Um, and if we can only learn to let go of those of those things, you know, our whole perspective on life can can change and become a lot uh, more happier and and, and contented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder what what Darwin was even thinking when he invented this whole evolution thing. <laughs> yes, it's been a disaster, hasn't it, from start to finish? It's kept us alive, you know. That's all you can say. Right you know, here, we we survived, we reproduce. It's fantastically successful, but it's not. Uh, it's it doesn't make it doesn't necessarily make us happy because in the end, we're not going to get what we want. You know, in the end, we're going to get sick, we're going to get old, we're going to die. Um, you know, to be brutally honest about it. So it's it's kind of. Uh, it's uh, working against reality, and if only we could accommodate that reality a bit better, you know, we we could live much happier lives. Mm-hmm. So um, it probably makes sense um, to spend maybe just a few moments thinking about any caveats that might be put out there, or, or warnings for people listening to the episode who get excited about the use of psychedelics who maybe experience. OCD or anxiety or depression and want to give it a shot. Obviously, you know, just like our dreams can be terrifying, psychedelic experiences can be terrifying. I've had at least two that I wish I hadn't had. So um, what what is the responsible thing to say to people about, um, you know, using these drugs, which are available either, um, you know, they're decriminalized in, in Washington, D.C., where I live and in New York. Um, so what are some important things? Uh, uh, safeguards that we might mention here to ensure well, responsibility. Yeah, no, that's so important. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because um, certainly if you talk to uh, scientists or clinicians, they will say that people who are who are prone to psychosis, whether they whether they have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, um, if if they're at risk of psychosis, it's probably a a bad idea to to use these drugs, or indeed if they have a family history of um, schizophrenia or bipolar. So that's the first thing to say. Having, having said that, um, there may be an exception to that rule, which we could perhaps, perhaps get onto later. But um, uh, the other thing to emphasize is that it's so important to get the, the set and the setting right, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. Um, it's the mindset 
that you bring to the experience, whether you're, you know, fairly chilled out when you go into the experience, and also the environment you find yourself. So far better to be in a, a place that's comfortable and calm and relaxing without any big surprises if you're going to uh, if you're going to trip rather than at a house party for example where things could uh, run out of control very quickly so and it's also very important if you're starting out on this kind of journey to have someone with you who who will act as a sitter who who will stay sober and will look after you and make make sure you're okay and reassure you and you know hold your hand whatever's necessary to make sure that everything goes well so i can't claim any uh you know widespread experience myself but these these are the basic rules that that always apply people always talk about you know having having somewhere there to look after you someone there to look after you being in a good place in a good frame of mind and uh also if you know if you're if you're particularly vulnerable mentally as as a result of uh bipolar or schizophrenia or anything that that uh, relates to psychosis it's it's almost certainly a, a bad idea mm-hmm. yeah thanks for saying that so i guess you wouldn't recommend taking these and then maybe going to a trump rally <laughs> things could get very weird e- even more weird than they would be otherwise yeah yeah you wouldn't believe it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine um so there's a couple of other things in the book that are also really interesting. So I have OCD. So stuff about OCD really piqued my interest. Um, there's a lot of, in here about dreaming and lucid dreaming. And so there's this there's this protocol, which uh, there's an acronym. I don't know if you're supposed to spell it out or just pronounce it T-A-C-S or TAX, um, where it seems like to facilitate the um, um, the creation of a lucid state while dreaming the scientist might pass some sort of um, sound or, or wavelength, some kind of energy at a certain frequency to, to your ears or maybe right onto your head with like electrodes. And that might induce um, a lucid state, which we should talk about what, what that is. But then furthermore, what, what are you then supposed to do with someone with phobias or OCD while you're in this lucid state to actually, you know, see some improvements? Well, um, the uh, the wonderful thing about dreaming, natural dreaming, in in particular REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is that its function appears to be to reprogram the brain, to emotionally regulate the brain. And what uh, we can do with lucid dreaming is to actually uh, direct that process. So, for example, someone who's afraid of public speaking, if they were able to to dream lucidly if they got really good at good at that they they could actually they could confront uh, that particular fear in their dreams and they could uh, they could learn to overcome it in much the same same way that conventional therapy um, you will be um, exposed to the thing that thing that makes you scared you know the spider or uh, heights or what have you and the idea is that uh, by being exposed to those things without any consequences, you will unlearn that that faulty conditioning, and uh, that that's how the therapy works. And in in lucid dreaming, you you can effectively do that for yourself, but with one major caveat, which is that it's actually quite quite difficult to learn to dream lucidly, despite all the books that have been written. You know, full disclosure, it's it's not actually very easy. There are techniques and, and there are you know, bits of equipment you can buy that, that work by, um, by uh, creating some sort of stimulus, whether it's a, a bright flashing light or you know, a vibration that tells you while you're asleep that you've entered REM sleep, which is the, the period when uh, you're able to lucid dream, you know, if, if you've learned how to, if you've developed that, uh, that skill. Um, but the evidence in favor of the the kinds of different kinds of equipment and indeed the evidence in favor of uh you know the different uh, induction techniques is still quite sketchy you know we're still quite quite early stages um so in the end you know persistence will probably pay off but uh it's something you have to work at and one of the things you can do is to uh 
journal your dreams, keep a record of your dreams, so that you can start to recognize uh, their distinctive characteristics. You know, for example, uh, in my dreams, I seem to do a lot of climbing for some reason, though I don't climb in, in the real world. But uh, there's a lot of climbing in my dreams, and people, they always seem to meet uh, celebrities or people who have passed on. And so there are those signs which you can learn to recognize, and that hopefully will trigger you into uh, lucidity. And another thing you can do is, uh, in the course of your normal waking life, you can get into the habit of um, performing checks. So, for example, every time you cross a threshold, every time you enter or leave a room, you can uh, do a little reality check, whether that's pinching yourself or jumping into the air, just to check whether you're dreaming. And uh, uh, or look at a clock face to see whether there's anything funny going on. Um, so these are all things you can do to uh, train your mind to become to become lucid in in your dreams. But um, they're they're not easy. They they, they take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I keep trying to push my finger through my hand, but I haven't succeeded yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's that's something uh, I've I've, uh, I've I've tried to do too without. Uh, without great success. I've, I've had, uh, I could probably count the number of lucid dreams I've had on, on one hand, but uh, it's very important to, to keep the, the idea of lucid dreaming at the front of your mind during the day. So uh, even if the techniques aren't foolproof, simply reading books about lucid dreaming, you know, uh, at bedtime, that's the sort of thing that will, will keep the idea of lucid dreaming at the forefront of your mind, and you, you'll be more likely to to uh, think of it while you're dreaming. You know, it's more likely to to be triggered. Mm-hmm. So, is the assumption here, given that I, I don't know if I've ever lucid dreamed, or maybe I came close once on a meditation retreat, is the idea that um, in your dreams you can really conjure anything? Like, if if I try to levitate, all of a sudden I levitate, or if I uh, want to counter some sort of OCD fear I have, maybe of like contamination or something dirty, I could sort of conjure a situation of like touching something dirty and, and then it will suddenly appear. Um, maybe that goes without saying, but is that an assumption here? No, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there's no, no limit to what you can do, really. If, if, if you're good at it, um, you can conjure absolutely anything you like. And you can, um, in theory, you, you could... Uh, create a sort of program for yourself to to encounter the things that uh, you know you find most disgusting uh, you could program yourself uh, in waking time to you know you could set a schedule of what you want to do almost like a real life training program and uh, when you become lucid in your dreams you could actually uh, go th- go through that and in the same way that um, people who have nightmares, people who have recurrent nightmares, they can, uh, it helps if they can learn to become lucid. And as soon as you're, you're, you're lucid, you can uh, start to, um, uh, to let go of those fears. You, you can, you know, you can say boo to the, to the monster and uh, make it disappear. You know, you can, mm. you can get your own back, you know, you can, you can smack it one and, uh, it sounds like a bit of fun, but actually it helps to retrain the brain subconsciously. It's the sort of thing that will help to to overcome those deep-seated um, models that you might have uh, about waking your waking fears, um, which uh, you know which occurs in OCD and fear of flying and fear of spiders and what have you. So that's the theory anyway. But I, to tell the truth, I haven't seen a lot of research on it. So uh, a lot of this is still theoretical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, for dreaming, it, it seems like hard to uh, hard to test and also hard to put people in that state. Um, yeah, you have a speaking of, you know, fear of flying, uh, the statistic, not that it's so important for the central theme of the book, but the statistic you hear about road traffic accidents versus flying Uh, 1.25 million people die annually in road traffic accidents roughly equivalent to a boeing 747 falling out of the sky every hour or so that was quite a quite an incredible statistic yes that's right i mean that really goes 
to the idea that um, even though in intellectually um, you know that flying is so much safer than getting in a car, you know, you might know that intellectually, but knowing the statistic doesn't doesn't help you if you've got an in, inbuilt uh, model that tells you that that uh, uh, flying is is extremely hazardous and you know you're not going to get out of it alive. Um, it's very hard to overcome that, and you can't overcome it through argument. You have to do something uh, a little more radical. You know, whether it's going for for uh, therapy and and helping you to to confront your fears and uh, you know, rewire those uh, uh, preconceptions about about flying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we find time and time again, despite people's best efforts, it's hard to it's hard to rationalize with a brain that's you know in a in a sort of existentially fraught mode. If it's in a fight, flight, or freeze mode, it's you know you can tell a person, and you see this all the time. People telling each other to calm down. You know, like it just really yeah. works. That's right. Yes, that's right. No, I mean, um, you've really got to unlearn these fears you've got to go through the same process in 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 reverse um for example um uh people in combat situations uh their their brains uh, because it's a highly stressful situation uh the theory is that the, the brain becomes more plastic more chaotic and uh they can pick up these uh you know very very long lasting stable uh, fears about what can happen in their environment because because of the re very real danger of um of uh you know uh, uh mines in the road by the side of the road for example and so you know they can take that take that home with us with them so that they become fearful in everyday situations walking down the street and um uh the idea is that for example with uh psilocybin or lsd you could return the brain to that chaotic plastic state and uh, then relearn that faulty faulty conditioning and uh, uh, and and recover from 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 that situation from from that uh, from that type of PTSD mm -hmm. yeah it's really it's really so interesting I think there's something else in the book that's kind of empowering especially for people who suffer from things like schizophrenia is this idea that you know delusions or hallucinations are in, instead of being like the mark of a, a brain that's really different in kind it's really this continuum of differences because you know we're all you know maybe schizophrenic's not the right word to use but we we are all hallucinating at night you know when we're asleep and yet some of us are having these delusions um during the day i, I mean most of us are walking around pretty deluded anyways um so it's it's nice to think that you know people who suffer from some of these uh, mental health maladies that are considered to be pretty extreme um, really are not so different from the rest of us, except maybe you know there's a few different gates that are a little more open or closed in their brain, and the things that they experience during their waking lives is not so different from what we experience you know every night when we hit the pillow. Absolutely, yes. I mean, halluc hallucinations are really quite common, even in people who don't have a diagnosed mental disorder and in fact uh, uh, psychologists would would say uh, hallucination is how perception works even ordinary ordinary perception is a, a controlled form of hallucination and uh, you know as we were saying earlier this this is how this only becomes apparent uh, during optical illusions and so uh, as you say people who who have uh, uh, schizophrenia or psychosis it's simply become more apparent because, uh, yeah, whether it's some neurotransmitter or receptor has, has nudged them into into a state where it becomes uh, more prominent than it should be. That the uh, the hallucination is is in control, and the sensory evidence is becoming less and less important to their perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot about this sometimes when I see like. Um, I'm from Florida and it's very hot there. And, you know, if you look at a, a black asphalt road in the distance, you'll often see those heat waves rising off of it that seem to make the, the, the world sort of blurry in the, in the space where that heat is taking place. Um, what, it, would that be considered a hallucination or an optical illusion? Well, um, with the with the heat coming off the road, that's probably actually changing the, the density of the air. So that's probably bending the light as it, as it passes through it so 
So that's probably a physical effect. But uh, but there are all sorts of um, uh, illusions. For example, there's one I, I mentioned in the book. If you're traveling in the train and looking out of the window, um, when you come to a stop at the station and look down at the ground, you know, the ground will still be appear to be moving because uh, your brain has got into this sort of... Uh, um, this uh, a preconception about uh, uh, how how the world is is changing, and, and uh, that that program is still running. When when you come to a stop at the station, that program is still running, and it will take a a few seconds to adjust to reality. It'll take a few seconds for the uh, raw sensory data to to uh, percolate up through your hierarchical processing model to to update your your perception of what's really happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that stuff was very interesting. It, it reminds me, um, as as my day job, I'm a software developer. And, you know, when people talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning, a lot of times they use this model called a neural network, um, which I guess is modeled after the brain and seems to do something pretty similar, which is to make predictions and then find what's wrong with those predictions and sort of cascade them back up uh, to the original model to then make make updates or make changes so that the prediction becomes more accurate. Um, but one question I had about that model is it seems like the accuracy of information is sort of being verified in both directions, right? So like the sense information coming up and also the predictive information going down, or did I, did I get that incorrect? Yeah, well, there's a, um, a subtle process going on at the same time, which um, they call uh, uh, precision. The brain seems to... Um, to uh, to label the streams of information whether they're going up or or uh, or uh, coming back down, it it labels how reliable they they are, how trustworthy they are, and in fact um, uh, serotonin and serotonin receptors and dopamine dopamine and dopamine receptors they're closely involved in that process in determining how much credence the um, the brain gives to whether it's sensory data coming upwards or the predictive data coming back down the other way. So there's this balance going going on. You know, it's not a simple two streams. It's it's a question of how how reliable those those alternative sources of information are. You know, uh, for example, um, in your dimly lit room, the brain will give more priority, more precision to your uh, predictive models. Whereas if you're in a bright uh, well-lit surroundings, it'll give more credence to to pure sensory data. So it's a question of balancing out the, the two two influences to to uh, hopefully decide what's really going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a really good example in the book, and that also probably highlights the difference between people having you know symptoms of schizophrenia and those that are not. Uh, it seems like the yes. thing, yeah. Exactly. Yes, in schizophrenia, it seems to be the dopamine receptor that is somehow um, misfunctioning, uh, malfunctioning. So that uh, yes, that's where the um, you know streams of information, the amount of credence given to a certain stream of information is more than it should be. So that you get, uh, uh, for example, an auditory hallucination, or you get some kind of delusion uh, coming out of the real world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's uh, some somewhere the the precision uh, monitoring machinery has gone wrong. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with um, uh, internal family systems or other therapy modalities that emphasize the idea that we have these internal actors or parts um, of our brain that sort of have different personalities and preferences. But you could imagine that in someone with schizophrenia, the sort of normal inner critics we have or the lazy parts or the loving parts could feel more like, um, you know, verified actual, um, uh, you know, people, you know, that they're hearing from instead of, you know, the way I guess most of us probably understand them as either extensions of ourselves or maybe metaphors or, or perhaps uh, some do regard them as, you know, actual people. But I could sort of imagine that being the case for someone with schizophrenia, although you know I don't know if that's actually true. Uh, yes, no, it's it's absolutely uh, true that in in schizophrenia the the sense of selfhood changes; it becomes more um, uh, more leaky, as it were, so that um, uh, so that 
the brain has trouble differentiating between stimuli that come um, from from inside and those that come from outside. So there's this kind of blurring of selfhood that, that can, for example, you can get a delusion that, that uh, some outside force is, is controlling your mind in some way because your selfhood is a little more uh, leaky so that you know you, you can't you can't tell whether you are determining your behavior or whether there's some outside force is doing that for you. And of course, in uh, uh, an extreme example is multiple personality disorder when you can actually have independent personalities within within the same within the same person within the same head um, and uh, you know that's truly extraordinary you, you you can have all these different personalities coexisting and and sometimes one particular one will be to the fore and the person will be outgoing and uh, sociable uh, for example at another time they might be very 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 shy and introverted and uh, and the, these different personalities can can exist quite independently mm -hmm. yeah it's very interesting um, and I think you know I, I really appreciate people like you making the science accessible because you know obviously there's lots of neuroscientists walking around who already know this stuff but for the rest of us you know it takes a science journalist like yourself to you know distill it into you know, a narrative that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, thanks for thanks for the work that well, you do. Well, I hope it's it's reasonably successful. I'm I'm much better at writing about it than talking about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I do it because it interests me, and I'm particularly interested by uh, mental illness and, and how how the brain uh, can possibly go wrong. And of course, we learn so much about the brain when things do go wrong mm -hmm. it's uh it, it provides so many insights and as you allude alluding to earlier you know in a sense we're all on the spectrum of mental illness either to a greater or lesser extent and that's because you know we we essentially we we share much of the same hardware so um when things go wrong it's just uh it's, it's more an extreme manifestation of of uh, everyday um behavior and mental activity Totally. Well, James, we've been talking for an hour now. I don't want to take up your whole day, but is there anything that we, I mean, there's lots in the book we haven't covered, but were there any important uh, notes or nuggets that you think would be important to let the listener know about before picking up a copy? Um, well, um, well, so many things, but um, uh, in, in particular, um, I was particularly fascinated by the effect of meditation on on people's fear of death and how um, meditation can help to break down your sense of, of selfhood. And that maybe taps into uh, another common theme of the book, which is mystical experiences. A lot of these therapeutic uh, advantages we've been talking about seem to depend in large part on having a mystical experience, whether it's whether it's an out-of-body experience or a psychedelic experience or or meditation, the effects seem to be so much stronger if you have this sense, for example, of being at one with the whole universe, at one with nature. And uh, for me, that was a whole new paradigm, the idea that to to heal, it's important to have these spiritual, mystical experiences. And um, scientists and doctors, they, they tend to, because they're trying to be objective, they, they tend to steer clear of all that stuff. But... Um, one of the things uh, that um, uh, I got out of writing this book was the discovery that um, these spiritual, spiritual, mystical experiences are, are so important for healing. And I think, you know, uh, psychiatrists and uh, doctors will have to come to terms with them and, and hopefully uh, try to foster, uh, you know, spiritual breakthroughs um, to improve people's lives. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess that will require sort of a blending of the um, normally pretty staid or uh, clinical way that, you know, science and medicine are conducted with, you know, things that are more comfortable and more spiritual, like, you know, music or um, instruments or various different items that are associated with, you know, having a mystical experience. That's right. Um, yes. Um, in these clinical trials, uh they do tend to have religious symbols in the um, in the room where the uh, trip takes place. 
it seems to be uh, very important, you know, whether it's a Buddha or a cross or, a, you know, a, a, a picture of a saint, whatever it might be. Um, these things are important, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of uh, for me, it's uh, it's a revelation because uh, studying science and medicine, you can become very kind of uh, your your objective, but the world becomes kind of grey and uh, uninteresting. You know, you've unweaved the rainbow, as uh, as they famously say. But uh, the reality with the mind is that uh, these spiritual experiences, and you mentioned music, of course, and uh, other kinds of art and dance and performance, they're actually very, very important to to our well-being. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, with that, I think um, I think we'll close. But thanks so much, James, for for reading for writing the book and coming on the podcast. And perhaps some point in the future, we can talk about Siddhartha's brain, which I'm still very excited to read and discuss. I'd love to. Yes, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much.